miscommunication. This week I read about a young couple where the wife got home from work first and had planned to cook a nice casserole for their dinner. She had it all prepared and in the oven, and then she got a text from her husband saying that there was a crisis at work and he wouldn't be home until late and for her not to wait up for him. Well, this had been an issue for them in the past, one where she had expressed her frustration, and so there was some tension about this whole dinner thing, but she decided even though she was disappointed, she'd take the high road. She went ahead and enjoyed eating her portion of the casserole. And she knew her husband would like a hot meal when he got home from work, so before she went to bed, she put the casserole back into the oven to stay warm, and she wrote out a note that simply said, Dinner in oven. And when she woke the next morning, her husband was sleeping next to her, so she got up and went down to make coffee, and she noticed there were no dirty dishes in the sink and that the casserole was still warming in the oven. Only an old, kind of moldy, leftover sandwich was missing from the refrigerator. So when her husband came into the kitchen, she asked, you know, well, what did you have for dinner last night? There was a cold silence. And so she said, didn't you see my note? And he responded kind of gruffly, yeah, it said dinner is over. Dinner is over or dinner in oven. Either she scribbles or he needs new glasses. Did you ever have trouble with mis miscommunication? The message you think you're sending isn't the same as what the other person receives. Either you don't get your words right, or they don't receive the message in the way you intended. Maybe your tone of voice or, or body language sent a, a different message than your words. Or if you'd only been there and said it to them in person, it would have been fine. But getting the message as an email, well, that leaves too much room for interpretation. It kind of hit a sore spot in their bruised emotions, and that's how misunderstandings happen. That's how arguments escalate. And sometimes we just, we just way overcomplicate what we're trying to say, and the message gets completely lost. See if you recognize this classic overcomplication. Scintillate, scintillate, globulovivific. Fain would I fathom thy nature specific. Loftily poised in the ether capricious, strongly resembling a gem carbonaceous. Translated, that's twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Miscommunication. We have a similar problem today in trying to talk, with, talk about the truth of Christ in a world that doesn't believe in absolute truth. Misunderstood or overcomplicated, the message sent and the message that's heard don't match up. Last week I described how we live in an age of relativism, that in general people no longer believe in absolutes. No, low, no absolute right or wrong, no absolute truth, no universal standards for all people at all time. Everything's relative, every idea is of equal value, so it's up to each person to decide for themselves what is true or false, what is right or wrong. No one religion is any better than any other religion. What's most important is, is how you feel and being extra careful never to offend anyone else with your beliefs. In fact, the worst sin in the world is to try to impose your version of the truth on someone else. Though in reality, we actually do that all the time. Every law passed imposes one group's view of morality upon the rest of society. That's just what laws do. They impose, they mandate a particular view of what is right and what is wrong. They mandate certain behaviors as legal or illegal. What people really mean is that they don't want you to impose your views on them. But if they can get it through Congress, then it's okay. 
Even the most ardent supporter of moral relativism still wants laws passed that favor their ideology. So here we come, as followers of Christ, talking about the truth that we know in Jesus to people who don't believe that anything is ultimately true. Here we come talking about the authority of the Bible in a world that doesn't believe in any authority outside of oneself. Inevitably, there's going to be misunderstanding. It's almost as though we're speaking two different languages. And that frustrates people of faith because we run through all the verses of Scripture that back up what we believe, that there is an eternal God who has revealed himself through real historical events, through real people. It culminated in a man named Jesus, the Christ, and this is all recorded and preserved for us in the Bible with historical accuracy. But say that to our secular world, and it's just background noise. To our culture, the Bible is just another book, one book of fairy tales alongside the myths of all the other religions of the world. So we can fight over truth. We can kind of beat the drum of the gospel truth, you know, until our ears bleed put it on billboards and bumper stickers all across the nation, put it out there. Great things like John 14, 6, that Jesus said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Great things. We could cover the entire countryside with that message. Or that great verse from John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We can shout out that gospel truth until we are blue in the face but it falls on deaf ears. It's like water off a duck's back. It doesn't stick. There's no impact at all. You see, talking about the truth that we've discovered in Christ with people in our secular world, it's like, it's like trying to describe the sweet, tart taste of pineapple to an Eskimo who's lived his entire life above the Arctic Circle, off the grid, whose entire diet has consisted of you know, walrus blubber with a side order of caribou jerky. You could give him a great speech about how great this thing called pineapple is. It's a fruit that comes off these other things called trees and in places called tropical jungles. And you can eat it and it tastes great. And that Eskimo would have no idea what you're talking about. It's no frame of reference for what you're talking. It has no idea what a fruit is. Or even what a tree is, much less a jungle. It has no concept of what sweet tastes like. He'd just look at you like you, you were crazy. So don't be surprised if when you're talking to someone about your faith in Christ that all you get is that blank look, that thousand-yard stare, the eyes kind of glazed over. Honestly, they have no idea what you're talking about. So what good does it do to proclaim the truth of the gospel to a world that has no concept of truth? Here's the main point. Truth matters, absolutely. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true, but listen. Truth has to be experienced before it can be believed. In today's secular, skeptical, sarcastic world, truth has to be experienced before it can be believed. You see, the only way the Eskimo can really understand what you're talking about is you have to bring a pineapple with you and cut it open in front of him and hand him a slice. And he has to put it on his own tongue and chew it and let that flavor kind of explode in his mouth. That's the only way he'll understand what you mean when you say pineapple or sweet. And so in today's skeptical world, truth has to be experienced before it can be believed. It's not to say there haven't been skeptics in the past. Uh, quite the contrary. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus, he was confronted with skeptics all the time. In fact, most people were skeptical about him. Take uh, these two stories from the Gospel of John. They're sort of like bookends in the Gospel. And 
chapter 1, verse 46, there's, 46, there's this quick conversation between Philip, who's just had his first encounter with Jesus and Nathanael. Philip tries to tell Nathanael about Jesus the Nazarene, but the communication misfires. Nathanael just says sarcastically, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was skeptical. Then flip back to John 18, where on the day of his crucifixion, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate on trial for his life. Jesus and Pilate had this back and forth duel about Jesus' claim to be a king. And in verse 37, Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. And in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to this truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate, with a note of despair in his voice, responds with those famous words, and what is truth? He's a real modern day skeptic. So how do you communicate truth to people who don't believe in truth? You wrap it up in a person. I mean, that's what God did. He wrapped up all his truth in Jesus. In John 18, Jesus says the very reason he was born was to testify to that truth, to incarnate that truth, to wrap that truth of God into human flesh and blood so that people could have a real encounter with God. The God who exists in the expanse of heaven, but he's a God now with skin on, a God who wants to be known and personally came to this planet to do what needed to be done so that all humanity could see and know God's truth. Too often when we think about knowing the truth, we think of that as head knowledge, something intellectual or logical. Knowing the truth about God means, you know, believing certain facts or doctrines. But that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word knowing. It means something personal, a personal revelation, that aha moment when the truth about God and his love sort of comes into focus for a person, an experience when God's truth becomes real, not academic or philosophical, but a personal encounter with the living God. That's why Jesus never said that he was going to point people to the truth or that he was a prophet of the truth. He said, I am the truth. Truth is a, is a person. It is the encounter, the experience of God's truth wrapped up in Jesus. It's that experience that then leads to an awareness of one's own sin, to one's need for salvation, to one's need for Christ as Savior and Lord. The Gospel writer John was trying to get people to understand way back in the first century that God's truth is a reality, not an idea. It's a reality that we encounter when we encounter Jesus himself. And though the world has grown more skeptical in our generation, the answer and how to respond to that skepticism remains the same. Truth has to be experienced before it is believed. That means people have to encounter Christ before they'll believe in him. People have to encounter the risen Christ before they will believe in him. Just like people, uh, just get people into the presence of Christ and then you can trust his truth to speak for itself. That was Philip's answer to Nathaniel. He said to his skeptical friend, just come and see. Come and see for yourself, Nathaniel. He had to experience Jesus for himself before he could believe. And that's what we need to do is just be a Philip who invites others to experience Jesus and then let his truth speak for itself. No arguing or arm twisting because when people encounter the real Jesus, it's almost like they're drawn to him. They sense his humility coupled with his power. They love his patience with knuckleheads like Peter. They love his self-sacrifice at the cross. They resonate with the grace he offers to outcasts like the woman at the well or little Zacchaeus up the tree. They love the way he faced off against the politically powerful. 
how he wasn't corrupted by greed or cowed by threats. They loved that he offered a redemptive alternative for engaging the evil in the world around us. They're moved by the hope of the resurrection. If you give people the real Jesus, they begin to fall in love with him. He's a magnet. And so what we can't do is give people a sappy, diluted, half-hearted Jesus. We have to give Jesus in all his power, in all his unadulterated, unvarnished glory, in all his complexity, in all his truth. And the only way to do that is to help people encounter Jesus through the Bible, the Word of God. You know, the only way we know anything about Jesus is through the words recorded for us in the New Testament. It's the only way we know anything about Jesus, his teachings or his encounters with people. Jesus himself, he never wrote a book. He is the living Word of God, and the Bible is God's Word written. Written through the agency of real people. It didn't fall out of heaven. It wasn't given to some mystic in a trance in a cave somewhere. No, real people wrote of their experiences with Jesus, and Christians believe the Holy Spirit then superintended that writing, overshadowed that writing, so that what was written was what God intended to be written. That's what we mean when we say the Bible's inspired. The Holy Spirit, working through real people, had written what God intended for his people. And it was in too important a message to kind of leave to chance. And that's why the Bible, particularly the New Testament, will always be the focal point of attack by the skeptics who want to dilute the Christian faith. If you can weaken the authority of the Bible, then you can just kind of make up whatever you want to about God. If you can get people to doubt the Bible or water down its message, then you can believe just about anything you want and just kind of stick a Christian label on it. But if the Bible is truly God's word written, then that option doesn't exist. As we experience Jesus, we come to believe in the truth of his word more and more. So here are two things about scripture and truth. First, truth matters because truth transforms. In John 8 that I mentioned earlier, Jesus says, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus himself, the embodiment of God's truth, it's in knowing and experiencing him that we find real freedom, that we find real transformation. Jesus said the same thing in the great high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. He prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, use your truth to make them holy. He, he's praying for us and he says that we are to be made holy. We are changed when we encounter the truth of God's word. The truth of Jesus, the truth embodied in Jesus sets us free. The truth of Jesus brings real change. The truth now recorded in scripture brings personal transformation. That's why you've got to be in the Bible if you want your faith to grow, to see your <coughs> excuse me, relationship with Christ deepen, to see your life changed. Christ brings change in your life when you encounter him through the scriptures. If there's no scripture, there's going to be no change. There's power in God's word to change the human heart. And when people start reading it and understanding it, lights go on. Things start to come to focus. Christ begins to become real to them. The truth starts to work in their hearts. And before you know it, the truth has set them free. That's why the most effective drug and alcohol rehab programs are deep into personal Bible study. In terms of preventing recidivism, going back to the addiction, the most effective programs focus on Scripture. In a study done in 1995, Chin Challenge has one of the highest success rates of all treatment programs, up to 86%. 
Because scripture opens the human heart to the work of the Holy Spirit. God's truth transforms. If you want to see change in your life, then you've got to get serious about reading, understanding, applying, and living the Bible in your life. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we always need to be aware of when people within the church community get confused and try to dilute the authority of the truth of Scripture. We need a real sensitive nose to kind of sniff that out and be aware. You know, all denominations are human institutions. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, it's changed names, merged, and split about nine times in the last 200 years. One of the biggest splits came in 1967 when a section of the church broke off and became the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. You may know Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan as the most notable PCA church in our area. Well, back in 1967, a new confession was passed by our denomination's General Assembly. It was controversial because it changed the way the church understood the authority of the Bible. Up until 1967, the church affirmed that the Bible is the Word of God. And the Confession of 67 changed that wording just slightly. And I'm simplifying for time's sake. But basically it said that the Bible contains the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God to the Bible contains the Word of God. And that may sound insignificant, but it's not. The change gave much broader room for interpreting the Bible so that it's the reader is the one who gets to decide uh, which parts of the Bible you know, contain the Word of God and which parts don't. That puts the reader as the authority kind of over Scripture rather than the other way around where we place ourselves under the authority of God's Word. If the Bible only you know, contains the Word of God, then you can ignore the parts of the Bible that don't suit you or that aren't in vogue or with the current culture. It's the same kind of relativism that we see in the secular world where each individual decides what's true and what's not. If the Bible only contains the Word of God, well, then you get to decide which part of the Bible worked for you, and I'll decide which part of the Bible's worked for me. But evangelicals and conservatives, they didn't like the change. They didn't support it. But at that time, that was one of the first votes where they were outvoted at the General Assembly, and it foreshadowed many things to come. Most of the people who believed in the full authority of the Bible, they didn't like the change. But since it didn't affect them personally, what they believed about the Bible, they just kind of could hold their nose and go on practicing their faith the way they wanted to within the PCUSA. Others were not so willing and thought it was too much of a compromise to say. And so there was a big split, and that's how the PCA was formed. It was a little change in how the denomination understood the truth of the Bible, but it's sort of like making a little change in the direction of a rudder on an ocean liner. At first, it doesn't appear to be much of a distance, but over time, that ocean liner is going to end up an entirely different destination. The weakening of Scripture, it's even reflected in the ordination vows taken by our elders and deacons, and some of you will see that this morning. They now promise to be, and I quote, led and instructed by the Scriptures. But nowhere are they called to actually obey the teachings of the Bible. Led and instructed by leaves a lot of wiggle room. Truth matters because truth transforms. God's truth is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, the living word, and his written witness in scripture is one of the main tools God uses to change us. In our skeptical world, every claim of Jesus about himself is gonna be challenged, not just the claim to truth. Our response has got to be to live out our faith 
with authenticity and with great joy. And to join in with kind of the spirit of the disciple Philip and simply say to people, come and see. Invite people to experience Christ for themselves and then let him do the rest. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that truth matters and that the truth of Scripture is what transforms the human heart. And we pray, Lord, that as a congregation, we would be committed to the full authority and power of your word written because that's what connects us to you, the living word, who is the one that actually makes the changes within us through your spirit. Give us that this week, Lord. Help us to get deep into your word we've never started to study the Bible or maybe we haven't picked it up in a while, Lord, put that within us to seek out how to do that. Seek out resources from the pastors or other people within the church, but to to finally get started, Lord, to read the Bible, to understand it, and to let your spirit then work in our hearts to change us so that we can be transformed by your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.